This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. This is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about The Warlord 19 through 21, Star Slayer number 5, John Sable 14, and Green Arrow 13 and 14. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com, which is his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there along with occasional news updates. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He is always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. And speaking of conventions, we're planning to attend Heroes Con in Charlotte in June, where Mike Grell will be a guest. So if there are any listeners out there who will also be attending Heroes Con, send us an email and let us know. Plus, since we're going to be at the convention, we're going to try to pick up a few extra items, and we're going to have a fun contest. So listen closely at the end of the episode for details on how to enter the contest. If you're unable to see Mike Grell at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Kress of Catskill Comics. He's the official representative for Mike Grell for commissions. Scott is always friendly and helpful. Also, as we've mentioned before, an upcoming movie, Star Raiders, The Adventures of Saber Rain, features Mike Grell in a small role. We posted a link to the trailer on our Facebook page. It looks like an adventurous sci-fi film, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. And there are a few other resources that Mike Grell fans will enjoy, including the Mike Grell page on Facebook, run by Gus Ceballos. The Geek Brain podcast from Jeff Messer has been fortunate to do a couple of interviews with Mike Grell on his show. The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network from Professor Allen, who is a Mike Grell fan. Black Canary fans should try out the Feathers and Foes podcast with Ashford, Leah, and Mark, as well as the Powers of Fishnets podcast by Ryan Daly. And for Green Arrow Comics past and present, try the Emerald Archer podcast from Ed and Nick Moore. We really enjoy sharing listener feedback. And all of the exchanges with listeners on our social media are so much fun. Please feel free to write in anytime and let us know your thoughts about the show and share your opinions on any of Mike Grell's work. We'll give our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. While Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, also known as Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, by Mark Schultz. We'll include links to those other podcasts in our show notes as well. Green Arrow number 13, Moving Target, October 1988. Script, Mike Grell. Pencils, Dan Jurgens. Inks, Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. 
Colors, Julia Lackament. Associate Editor, Brian Augustine. Editor, Mike Gold. It's night in Seattle, and Diana has just returned home from the store. She walks inside carrying her groceries and then suddenly notices a familiar aroma. She rushes upstairs, where she finds Oliver making his signature chili. He didn't call to tell her he was back in town because he wanted to surprise her. Some surprise, she says, the aroma of burning tar paper. Then she notices the back of his shirt is stained with blood. Pulling up his shirt, she sees the wounds from his recent adventures with Shadow. Dinah rebandages his wounds and then slugs him for taking such poor care of himself. Dinah wakes Oliver early the next morning because they have a busy schedule and she needs him to help with the deliveries. At his first stop, he has roses for Ellen Markham, but when he knocks, it is a surprised-looking David Markham wearing a Navy uniform who opens the door. He takes the card from the flowers and then stomps back inside yelling at his wife because the message on the card says, All my love, Richard. Oliver follows him into the house where he sees David with his fist raised in the air and Ellen Markham cowering in the corner. Oliver politely says, Excuse me, and points out that he still needs a signature for the delivery. David swings a fist toward him. Oliver easily avoids it and then slugs David, knocking him unconscious. Oliver suggests that Ellen leaves before David wakes up, but first, he still needs a signature for the delivery. <coughs> Next, Oliver stops when he sees a young woman calling up to a cat that is stuck in a tree. I've always wanted to do something like this, he tells the woman as he climbs the tree and returns with the cat in hand. He asks its name and is told it's Tinkerbell, and then he points out that it isn't a very appropriate name since it's a boy. Next, Oliver delivers flowers for a wedding, where he finds a nervous groom who is having trouble with his bow tie. Oliver isn't really any better at tying a bow than the groom, but in the end, he manages to fix him up thanks to a couple of well-placed staples. Next, Oliver stops on a bridge where an older woman has a flat tire. Oliver offers to change the tire, but she tells him she doesn't have a spare. Just then, another car stops, and that man offers to give the lady his spare tire, since they coincidentally drive the same model car. Oliver remarks how lucky she is to have two Samaritans come to her rescue. He then gives her a rose and drives away, leaving the other man who is already in the process of changing the tire. Next, Oliver sees a gang of young men harassing an elderly couple. He stops in an alley and returns as the green arrow. A couple of well-placed arrows and a swing of his bow as a staff makes the thugs quickly run away. That evening, Oliver and Dinah take a walk and he tells her about his many adventures during the day. Just then, a car swerves toward them before hitting a pole in the distance, and the driver runs away. At first, Oliver is certain the driver was intentionally trying to hit them, but when Lieutenant Cameron arrives on site, he tells them the car was reported stolen, the radio was on at full volume, and the ashtray was full of marijuana. Just looks like a joyride gone wrong. Later, Oliver walks alone to the corner to get a newspaper. A man is cleaning the display window of a department store when suddenly the glass breaks. Oliver is certainly surprised by the sudden crash of the glass, but when the store manager comes outside and begins to yell at the window cleaner for being careless, Oliver turns and walks away without noticing the bullet hole in the mannequin in the display window. This is such a fun issue from beginning to end. I always enjoy the playful interaction between Oliver and Dinah, and this story is a perfect example. Dinah is thrilled to have Oliver home, concerned over his injuries, and then furious over his carelessness, all in the span of a few pages. It's all very believable, very well-paced, and very entertaining. The series of vignettes that make up Oliver's day might seem mundane on the surface, but each is short and compact and filled with little touches that make them feel realistic. Then in that last scene, the reader suddenly knows something else is going on, but that will have to wait until the next issue.
Dan Jurgen steps in to replace Ed Hannigan on pencils in this story, and the change is seamless. The book looks fantastic, just like it has for the previous 12 issues, which isn't surprising because Dan Jurgens is an equally great artist. Some particular favorites are the very first page, where we get to see the Seattle Space Needle at night, followed by a series of images of Dinah carrying in groceries, smelling Oliver's chili, and then racing upstairs. And I love the touch of her running past the painting of Robin Hood on the wall, foreshadowing that it is Green Arrow at the top of the stairs. The fight with the gang is covered over two or three pages and is filled with a variety of different angles that make the fight exciting and funny at the same time. And there's a gorgeous panel of Green Arrow aiming his arrow directly at the reader in this section. The perspective is perfect, and the green of his costume against the dark night background really makes it pop off the page. Green Arrow number 14, Moving Target Part 2, November 1988. Script Mike Grell. Pencils Dan Jurgens. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters John Costanza. Colors Julia Laquament. Associate Editor Brian Augustin. Editor Mike Gold. It's night in Seattle. A man is walking across the roof of a building toward the Paramount Theater, where the marquee advertises the musical Cats. The man opens the case he is carrying and begins to assemble a rifle. As the musical ends, the audience begins to leave the theater, and we see Oliver and Dinah holding hands. The sniper aims his rifle at Oliver's head, but just as he pulls the trigger, Oliver turns as a woman hands him a coin he just dropped. People begin to run and duck behind cars parked along the street. Oliver grabs Dinah's hand and the two run away. He knows staying nearby will only endanger the other theater goers. The two circle around a building and then climb the fire escape of the building where they know the sniper must have been, and there they find bullet casings on the roof. Oliver recognizes them as subsonic rounds used with a sound suppressor. Expensive, not common. He suspects the CIA. Eddie Fires gets out of the shower when an arrow pins his towel to the wall. He reaches out for his gun, but then hears a voice say, I wouldn't, and another arrow flies through his towel. Oliver wants to know why the CIA is after him, and whether it has anything to do with Osborne and the adventure with Shadow in Hawaii. While Oliver hasn't heard the news, what he assumed would happen was right. Osborne used his connections to get released, but was killed by the Yakuza the very same day. Eddie tells Oliver the CIA isn't looking for him, and that lots of others could have gotten the weapons he describes, including the FBI, military police, organized crime, street gangs, high school kids, grandmothers, anyone with a little money. That evening, Oliver and Dinah are trying to narrow down suspects. Dinah immediately wonders if it could be the Yakuza but Oliver thinks it's more likely to be someone with a grudge, and his first suspects are the gang members from the previous issue. He finds them in the same part of town. He makes quick work of them yet again, and learns they didn't have anything to do with it. As he walks away, he notices a newspaper on the ground with a peculiar headline about the FBI helping to search for an important cat. Holly Peters returns to her dorm room to find the Green Arrow petting Tinkerbell. It turns out Tinkerbell is a lab animal with mutated cells that could eventually lead to a breakthrough in cancer research. Green Arrow assumes she plans to sell it to the highest bidder, but first she needed to get rid of the only witness. But through tear-streaked eyes, the story comes out. Yes, she stole the cat, but that was just to protest the treatment of lab animals. She didn't even know there was something special about this particular cat. Green Arrow leaves, but only after ensuring she will turn herself in and use her newfound notoriety to make her case to the public. Next, Green Arrow returns to the Markham's house, and when David answers the door, Oliver grabs him and says, I learned you're with naval intelligence, and you have access to weapons, and you hold a grudge. 
Then Green Arrow sees David's wife behind him, and then the priest. It turns out that David was with them the night before, going through marriage counseling with his wife. Oliver leaves embarrassed and calls himself a jerk and a stupid idiot. He sits down in his van and then notices the newspaper on the seat with the headline, Coroner Rules James Alexander's Death Accidental. Then he recognizes one of the faces in the picture. It's the woman who had the flat tire, but no spare. And the car in the photo that is being recovered from the river is the car she was driving. Then he feels a gun at the back of his head and is told to drive to the river. As he drives, he notices a familiar car in his rearview mirror. It's the second car that conveniently arrived with a spare tire. When he gets on the bridge, Oliver swerves the van wildly, knocking the man behind him off balance and causing the car following them to swerve, and it crashes partway through the guardrail on the bridge. Oliver comes out swinging and knocks out the man who has the gun. It's the Samaritan who had the spare tire. Getting out of the second car that was following them is the elderly woman who had the flat tire. It turns out she's Congresswoman Alexander, the wife of James Alexander. It's her husband who was found dead in the river in the car that she had been driving. It is believed to be an accident, but obviously it wasn't. She killed him. The reason she didn't have a spare is because the body of her already dead husband was in the trunk. She tries to defend herself, explaining that her husband was a womanizing drunk who beat her for 16 years. But that doesn't excuse the fact that she and her accomplice have now tried multiple times to kill the only witness. The irony of the situation that Oliver points out is that he never recognized her and wouldn't have given the incident a second thought. She raises a gun, saying she should have taken care of him herself to begin with. But just then, the guardrail breaks free, and the car slides over the bridge, taking her with it. Oliver stands in silence as he watches her and the car plunge into the river. This story opens with another beautiful night scene of the Seattle Space Needle before plowing forward at a fast pace. It was great to see the various stories from the previous issue revisited, and interesting to see where the story was going. The story of the cat was a great use of misdirection, keeping the reader off target, and I even liked the way the cat's musical might have helped with that misdirection. But it was a fair play mystery, because in retrospect, the story of the flat tire on the bridge had several odd elements that should have made the reader suspicious from the beginning. Plus, in the encounter with Eddie Fires, the story about the congresswoman's dead husband is on the television in the background, including a clear view of the car. The scene of Oliver and Dinah watching the musical Cats is really vibrant. We had the opportunity to see that musical years ago, and the image definitely brought back memories. And it was fun to see Eddie Fires again, and to learn that Oliver's prediction of what would happen to Osborne was correct. The scene of Oliver swerving on the bridge near the end of the story is done as a great two-page spread with a variety of angles that make it very exciting. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol, destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol, volume 2. Copperberg Lytle. 1989 Morrison and Case Issue 19 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark 
2016? Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. The Warlord number 19, Wolves of the Steps, March 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Anchor, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrienne Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Zooming over the treetops of Skataris are Travis Morgan and Tara in the flying speeders they acquired from the Blood Moon spaceship in the previous issue. The Hound Shadow rides alongside in Morgan's ship. The two marvel at the amount of territory they've been able to quickly cover in their search, but lament that they still haven't found their son. Then Morgan remembers a phrase the witch Saba used when she said they would find Joshua in the land of half-light, half-shadow. And Morgan realizes she means the rim of the world where Skataris meets the outside world at the polar opening. As they turn their speeders north, we see the evil Demos watching their progress in a crystal ball. The elderly witch, Ashia, stands beside him, but in her youthful visage, while Morgan and Tara's son plays at their feet. Suddenly, Demos clutches his chest in pain. The degeneration has returned. He looks at his hands, which seem to wither before his eyes. Demos wonders what is taking the guard so long, and just then a soldier enters and apologizes for being late, stating that the prisoner was uncooperative. Demos takes a goblet from the guard and quickly drinks every drop. The pain subsides, and he is filled with a surge of power and energy. With his renewed strength, Demos turns toward the crystal ball and casts a spell. Morgan and Tara suddenly find their speeders surrounded by darkening storm clouds. Strong winds begin to buffet their ships. Lightning strikes Tara's speeder, and it begins to plummet toward the ground, but in the strong winds, Morgan is unable to turn his craft to follow her. Tara's ship crashes, leaving her unconscious. A band of men on horseback find her and comment on her beauty just as she wakes. One of the riders takes her in his hands and tells her his name is Torgash. He calls her wench and says she can call him master. Tara grabs her sword from the ground and swings it in a smooth arc, cutting off his right hand. Torgash calls his men to spear her and gut her, but as they raise their weapons, Morgan leaps from the rocks above, and he and Tara begin making quick and easy work of the brigands. But suddenly the smoldering fire of the downed speeder reaches the fuel tank and explodes. Morgan and Tara are too close to the ship, and both are thrown to the ground unconscious. They wake to find themselves tied to a post above a pit containing two giant bears. Torgash plans to show them the horrific death that awaits them by lowering the hound shadow into the pit first. This infuriates Morgan, and he rips free from the ropes and jumps forward, but Torgash quickly moves out of the way and Morgan slams into a nearby soldier, and the two of them tumble into the pit. Torgash then grabs Tara and throws her into the pit as well. Morgan grabs the soldier's sword and turns toward the approaching bears. Just then a spear flies into the pit from above, killing one of the bears, and the other turns away in fear. Then a rope drops down, and Morgan and Tara hear familiar voices telling them to climb the rope. It's Mariah and Mashiste. They are actually the leaders of this band of misfits, but news of what Torgash was up to was slow to reach them. Once out of the pit, Morgan turns toward Torgash and slugs him, knocking him down into the pit with the remaining bear. 
The cover features a very interesting image of Morgan wearing golden armor that is decorated with images of various characters and creatures from the series, including Tara, Machiste, Mariah, Demos, and a T-Rex. Very nice, regardless of whether or not it has anything to do with the story inside. The two-page title spread is of Demos and Ashia watching Morgan and Tara in the crystal ball while Joshua plays at their feet. The perspective is excellent, with the crystal in the foreground making it look larger than any of the characters. Demos looks relaxed and in control. A devious grin is on his face. We start to get filled in on the backstory of Demos and his rebirth. All is not well for him as he must stay hidden away from the sunlight, which is rather difficult in a land where the sun never sets. I really like the scenes of Morgan and Tara flying on the speeders. I like how they are designed and would love to have one myself. There's a great combat splash page where Tara and Morgan are in great action poses with their swords. I like how the flames from the crash speeder are drawn to arc up from the bottom, go off to the side, and trail out overhead. It's a nice visual effect. And the force of the exploding speeder is conveyed very well in the illustration of Morgan and Tara being knocked away and Morgan's helmet is flying off his head as he falls. It was great to see Machista and Mariah return to the series, though they don't seem to be fully in control of their newfound soldiers. The Warlord Number 20, Battle Cry, April 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inker Vince Coletta. Colors Adrian Roy. Letters Ben Oda. Editor Jack C. Harris. Travis Morgan and Tara are out in front, leading a battalion of Machis Samurai's soldiers from the previous story. All are marching north. Tara doesn't like the cold temperatures or the dim twilight as they approach the rim of the world. In the darkness ahead, they see a large fortress. Inside the fortress, Demos watches their approach and then turns to Ashia and tells her to bring the child. He doesn't understand it all, but reading the scrolls of blood have given him an idea. He takes a sharp knife and removes the tiniest sliver of skin from Joshua's arm and lays it on a glass tray at the center of the machine. He begins to operate the controls and Ashia gasps as a second child seems to grow before her eyes. Demos calls it a clone and tells Ashia he will use it to deceive Morgan. Demos turns back to the crystal ball and casts another spell. A powerful earthquake strikes and rocks begin to fall all around our heroes, crushing many of the soldiers following them. Those few soldiers that escape the earthquake find themselves attacked by giant winged demons. Once everyone except Morgan, Tara, Machiste, and Mariah are dead, the demons fly away. He left us untouched, comments Morgan. He must be planning something special for us. Our heroes find the drawbridges down and the gate to the fortress is open, but Morgan still insists on caution. He walks across the drawbridge alone and it collapses behind him. Then just as he steps inside, the gates close behind him as well. Inside the fortress, he is attacked by more of the winged demons but it's just a diversionary tactic to slow him down. At the top of the stairs, he finds Demos seated on a throne. Morgan pulls out his sword and stabs Demos through the chest. But Demos only laughs, saying, You killed me once. You cannot kill me again. Such is the power of the Mask of Life. As Demos reaches down and pulls the sword from his torso, Morgan realizes the irony that he helped retrieve the very item that brought Demos back to life. Then Demos announces that Morgan will fight his champion. He draws back a curtain and Morgan sees his infant son Joshua. Demos reaches out to a control panel and electricity crackles all around the child, 
who then suddenly starts to grow until a full-grown muscular man stands before Morgan. Here is my champion, Morgan, your son Joshua. The cover shows Demos and Ashia staring into a crystal ball, showing our heroes Morgan, Tara, Mariah, and Mashiste racing into battle. The two-page title page is a stunning image of Morgan on horseback, looking off into the distance toward Demos' giant fortress. The colors and shading create an ominous effect. It's a truly great image. The character design and costume for Demos have always let the reader easily see that he is evil, and now there's even the addition of a terrible scar that runs across his face. I appreciate the journeys that Morgan must take in Scutaris because it allows for so much variety in locations. As usual, the action scenes are well-paced and exciting, with creatures or characters sometimes leaping or falling across the edges of the panels. I really like the effect. And near the end of the story, there's a fantastic full-page splash of Morgan fighting the winged demons once he gets inside the fortress. Another great image. The Warlord, number 21, Terminator, May 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Outside the giant fortress, Tara, Machiste, and Mariah have been unable to find another entrance. Then Mariah notices shadows above them, and our heroes find themselves in battle with hordes of demons. <laughs> Inside, Travis Morgan stares in shock at his son Joshua, now a full-grown man, but as Demos announces him as his new champion, Morgan points out while he may have the body of a full-grown man, he still has the mind of a child, and Demos turns to see the full-grown Joshua sucking on his thumb. Angered, Demos casts a spell and Joshua's eyes flame with hatred. Outside, our heroes are being overrun by the sheer number of demon warriors. Mariah points out a small cave in the distance, and they all run toward it. Once inside, Mashis swings the mace that serves as his right hand and strikes a stone support near the cave opening, and rocks begin to fall, blocking the entrance. They are safe for now, but only if they can find another exit. Tara pulls out the magical emerald she and Morgan discovered in the Lost Citadel during their travels. She tells Mashis and Mariah how they found it, and explains that its power diminishes with each use. It can light their way, and thankfully, they see that the hound's shadow has picked up a scent and wants them to follow. Inside, the now-possessed Joshua begins to attack Morgan, but Morgan is unable to attack his son in return. He defends himself with his shield until it is torn to shreds by Joshua's repeated blows. Then Morgan uses his sword to deflect as many blows as possible until Joshua finally strikes Morgan's right arm, causing him to drop his sword and fall to the ground. As Joshua raises his sword for a killing blow, Morgan's survival instinct kicks in and he fires his gun at his own son. Joshua falls to the ground, and as Morgan holds his dead body in his arms, rage takes over his mind and he grabs his sword and turns toward Demos, who reminds him that he is immortal and Morgan can't kill him. Perhaps, Morgan says, but we shall see if you can live when your head and limbs are separated from your body. The frightened Demos casts a spell and Morgan finds himself confronted by a giant dragon serpent. Just then, Tara and Mashiste and Mariah race into the room. Tara puts the two pieces of the magical emerald together, and a beam of energy leaps forth and destroys the dragon. The hound shadow races past them all and leaps at Demos, and the two plummet over a balcony and fall into the depths of the canyon below. Morgan stares over the balcony as Shadow vanishes into the distance and sadly says, 
Nobody asked you to do that. He turns and sees Tara leaning over the dead body of Joshua. Without having seen the transformation, she still recognizes the grown man as her son. Morgan tells her what happened, but he takes the mask of life and turns to restore Joshua's life, but Tara stops him. She knows the curse that comes along with the mask of life. She knows that sunlight will rot the skin and that life comes only from drinking human blood. She will not condemn her son to that kind of life. Morgan picks up his helmet and announces that he's leaving and asks his three companions to join him. The three look at each other, and then Mariah speaks up for the group. No, Morgan. There was a time I would have followed you anywhere, but no longer. And Morgan is left to ride off alone on horseback, as a faint sound of mocking laughter can be heard from the canyon below. Far to the south, Ashia speaks to a young couple who live on a small, simple farm. She gives them the real infant Joshua, along with enough money to see to the child's needs. The young boy smiles, and the parents stare intrigued at the strange watch that he wears on his arm. With that, the search for Joshua comes to a very bittersweet end for now. Morgan and Tara believe their son is dead at Morgan's hands, and a depressed Morgan has found himself abandoned on his own. And though Demos fell into the depths of the canyon, we are teased at the end with the knowledge that he survived. And on top of all of that, we must sadly say goodbye to the hound Shadow, who has been a friend and protector for many issues. Once again, Tara proves to be the stronger of the two, as she prevents Morgan from using the mask of life on Joshua's dead body. She knows what is best for their son. The cover features a scene of Morgan and Joshua in battle. The two stand upon the giant opened hand of Demos, and the interior is filled with battles. Morgan against Joshua, Tara, Machiste, and Mariah against the demons, Morgan against a dragon. The art and layouts are outstanding. For example, the fight sequence between Morgan and his son is really intense and well choreographed. One full page is a montage of scenes from the combat, all surrounding an image of Demos' face with an evil grin at the center. Then the very next scene is a full-page view of Joshua's successful strike with the sword. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Star Slayer, the Director's Cut, number 5, August 1995. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens on Phobos, one of the moons of Mars. It is a tiny oasis that has managed to maintain its neutrality in the war-torn planetary system. Tamra is having a drink at a bar when two men invite her to join them in the sensor pool. I think not, she says, but the two men persist, so she pivots and slams them both against the wall. The men turn back and begin to reach for their weapons when Torin grabs them from behind and slams their heads together, knocking them unconscious. Torin and Tamra are planning to search for the shard of the Amulet of Power that should be in the possession of the ruler of Mars on the moon of Deimos. But there is a complication. Five years ago, the ruler of Mars was assassinated. 
One son took the throne on Deimos and accused the other of the murder, leaving that son to flee to the barren surface of the planet where he has raised his own army. The two brothers have been locked in a battle for the throne ever since. Just then, the station on Phobos shudders from a violent impact. Tamra wonders if it was a meteor, then they hear lasers beginning to cut through the wall of the station. As a gang of brigands drop into the station, they demand the Earthers be turned over to them. Torun and Tamra join the battle, taking down several of the intruders, but then Tamra is shot in the back by a stun blaster, and the brigands retreat into their ship with their hostage. Tamra wakes to find herself on the surface of Mars. She is a guest of Baraka, Lord of the Brigands, and, he claims, rightful heir to the throne of Mars. He has taken her hostage to use as leverage to gain control of the warship the Jolly Roger in the hopes of using it to defeat his brother. He tells Tamra that his younger brother killed their father and then blamed the murder on him so he could claim the throne. Baraka fights to clear his name and to free his people from a lying and murderous ruler, and the Jolly Roger can help him achieve that goal. Then Tamra explains that she is the commander of the Jolly Roger, and her crew consists of only one man. Then let us pray he is a man of reason, Baraka replies. On board the Jolly Roger, Torin is at odds with himself. He feels little loyalty to Tamra, since she took him from his family, despite the fact that he would have died in battle otherwise. Sam, his small robot assistant, slips into his best Humphrey Bogart impersonation, and tells him that if he doesn't help, he'll regret it. Maybe not now, but soon, and for the rest of his life. Torin agrees with his reasoning. While he will continue to search for a way back home to his family, he concedes that Tamra is all he has right now. Where an army might fail by force, he thinks, perhaps one man might succeed by stealth. The Bowspirit shuttle flies toward the moon Deimos. When it is picked up on sensors, it is guided into dock and armed guards board the ship, only to find it seemingly empty. When only two guards remain, Torin drops from his hidden location, knocking them out, and begins to sneak through the shadows of the station. As he enters the throne room, the ruler calmly says, Ah, the intruder, and instructs his guards to take him. Torin finds himself rushed by a battalion of armed female guards, and Sam asks how he feels about hitting a woman. Torin responds, A woman is as good as any other warrior with a sword. Torin fights valiantly, but as with Tamra, finds himself shot in the back with a stun blaster. Sam escapes and flies through space, zooming in on Tamra's location, where he tells her and Baraka that Torin has been captured. Tamra then explains to Baraka the importance of the Amulet of Power, and why she and Torin must continue their mission. If the two work together, they perhaps can save Torin and defeat Baraka's brother. The Jolly Roger flies toward Deimos with lasers blasting. Tamra, Baraka, and his men fight their way to the throne room. Baraka offers his brother the chance to turn himself in and stand trial, but his brother launches toward him with his sword in hand. But Baraka is the better warrior and easily defeats his brother. Baraka takes the Amulet of Power as proof of his right to the throne. Then he turns to Tamra and gives her the fragment needed to continue her mission. The cover features an image of Torin wearing a helmet shaped like the skull of a saber-toothed tiger, which he wears in this issue when he goes into battle. The interior art continues to be spectacular. Mike Grell really went all out in this series with varied page and panel layouts filled with gorgeous ship designs and costumes and lots of action. The title page features Tamra in her encounter with the two men at the bar. I love the way her costume flows across the page just as the two men fly into the wall. 
The buildings, tents, and costume designs Mike Grell uses for the Martian soldiers is reminiscent of nomadic Bedouin tribes as depicted in many Hollywood films like Lawrence of Arabia. It is a really nice effect and seems appropriate for the sand-covered surface of Mars. I also like that Torin wasn't able to infiltrate and defeat the Emperor on the moon of Deimos all on his own. That wouldn't have been realistic. And Sam's occasional Humphrey Bogart impersonations are always a treat. Plus, isn't it a fun coincidence to talk about the moon of Deimos in the same episode where we talk about the evil wizard Deimos? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. We oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. John Sable Freelance, number 14, The Wall, July 1984. Created, written, and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Ken Bruznak. Colors, Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. Gray has invited John Sable over to his and Mike's apartment, where he introduces him to Misha Yurkovich. Sable is familiar with him. He's a famous ballet dancer who defected to America two years earlier. Sable saw him dance the Nutcracker just last year. Misha begins to tell his story. He and his wife, Anastasia, were both supposed to defect two years before while performing in Paris, but in the end, she was unable to get away. He had hoped that public opinion would encourage the Soviet government to let her join him in the West, but that has not been the case. Instead, they have prevented her from performing outside of Russia for the last two years. But an opportunity has arisen. She will be performing in East Berlin, and he wants to hire Sable to help her escape to the West. It will be a challenge to get someone over the Berlin Wall. Sable likes a challenge, and the price is right, so Sable agrees to help. Before he leaves, Sable asks Mike out on a date, but she refuses. She thinks he is denying his true self by pretending he only does things for money and that he no longer believes in doing things for a cause. He tells her charity doesn't pay, and when she points out the beautiful children's stories that he writes, he reminds her that it is just a sideline and he only does it for the money. Sable and Misha enter East Berlin driving a truck and using fake IDs. At the Berlin Wall checkpoint, armed guards open the back of the truck, but it looks to be empty. They park the truck in an alley behind the Performing Arts Center and open several hidden compartments and begin pulling equipment up onto the roof. Inside, the overture begins, and the two men sneak backstage, but then a man in costume sees them and recognizes Misha. Sable slugs the man, knocking him unconscious. Misha is shocked. He recognizes the actor and the costume. He is playing the lead. If he isn't on stage in minutes, everyone will know something is wrong. As the overture ends, Anastasia dances onto stage, and a man in costume leaps out to join her. As the two begin their dance, her shocked expression shows she recognizes it is her husband. During a scene change, they quickly make their way up to the roof where Sable is waiting for them.
Moments later, a motorized hang glider carrying Misha and Anastasia launches from the roof of the building toward the Berlin Wall. Close behind them, Sable launches from the roof in the small powered glider. As they approach the Berlin Wall, bright searchlights pivot toward the hang glider, and the two men in the tower raise their guns to fire. Just then, Sable's glider rushes past and fires a small missile. The tower explodes and he and the hang glider pass over the wall into the safety of West Berlin. A few days later, Sable shows back up at the apartment of Mike and Gray to ask Mike out yet again. He has tickets to the first performance of Misha and Anastasia in the West, but she refuses yet again with the excuse of a looming deadline. However, Gray is free, so Sable finds himself taking Gray out on a date instead. I enjoyed the story. It was a fun, one-issue adventure with a very happy ending. It was nice to have a brighter story after the sad, poignant MIA storyline. I especially like the pages of Sable and Misha entering East Berlin and setting up their equipment. It is dark and suspenseful, as they have to scale buildings and haul up parts to assemble their escape vehicles. The use of shadows and light are effective in conveying the mood. Then on later pages, those panels become intermixed with panels of Anastasia, who is at the very same time getting prepared for her ballet performance. I like that she's putting on makeup, dance slippers, and stretching all the while unaware that John and Misha are there preparing for an escape. I was admiring the artistic use of reds and blues on those pages when I suddenly realized it is the whites that make them stand out. So those colors, red, white, and blue, are a nice visual symbolic part of the story about helping a Russian defect to America. There are so many beautiful images of the ballet and the issue that it really shows off Mike Grell's command of the human form. And my last comment is about the glider sequences near the end. The layouts are great and make them so exciting. It was a very adventurous and thrilling way to leave the city. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we received since last time. We appreciate every comment we receive. They add so much to the show, so a big thank you to everyone who took the time to write in or to get in touch through social media. We are sending out a big thanks to Ryan Daly for inviting us to be on his Secret Origins podcast. Ryan is a terrific host. He asked some great questions, and he really knows his Green Arrow history. We had a great conversation. That episode will be out soon, and we'll be sure to post it on our social media sites when it is out. So stay tuned. We were amused and honored to find ourselves cast by Siskoid in the leading and only roles for an installment of Romance Comics Theater on a recent episode of the Lonely Hearts podcast. We had fun trying our hands at acting out the scenes of a short comic titled The Captain's Mate from 1959. Thankfully, Siskoi did a great job adding sound effects, which significantly enhanced our performance. Feel free to listen and laugh along with us. We'll be sure to include a link to that in our show notes. Thank you, Siskoi, for inviting us to be on your fun show. Some of you may have seen the picture we posted of the fabulous Warlord Commission that Ron Randall did at Calgary Comic Expo. As many of you know, we cover Ron Randall's Trekker on another podcast but he also was the artist for a time on The Warlord after Mike Grell left the series. It was a great image of Travis Morgan. Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast shared, I am always excited, bordering on giddy, to see a new Warlord Worlds podcast appear. That made us feel great, Jeff. Thanks. And Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog let all of his friends and followers know that he thought our latest episode was great. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast shared, I'm loving your recaps and reminders of reading those borrowed green arrows back in the day. Shadow is such a great character. I certainly agree with you there, Paul. She's a favorite of mine. 
Paul added, The other Mike Grell Green Arrows I remember are the three-part annual crossover when Travis Morgan comes to Seattle. We love those too and look forward to covering those in the future. Mario wrote to say, As usual, straightforward coverage. It's one of my favorites. I especially enjoy the coverage of Green Arrow and Shadow's return. Thank you, Mario. Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag were discussing Shadow on a recent episode of Who's Who on the Fire and Water podcast. Shag said he liked the character, but thought she was a bit overused. The next thing we knew, Shadow had an arrow pointed directly at Shag. But thankfully, her temper subsided just as she released the arrow, and Shag only ended up with a newly pierced ear. Shag was really lucky to get out of that situation so easily. Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets podcast wrote, I really enjoy your coverage of the Green Arrow story in the last episode. Great job as always. Thanks, Ryan. That means a lot coming from you. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog listened to our podcast and wrote that those particular Sable stories were so sad and disheartening and that he appreciated the show and the discussions. He thought the Green Arrow issues we covered last time were interesting and wondered if they had been collected. And for those of you who are interested, we're happy to say that DC has been collecting Mike Grell's Green Arrow series in trade paperbacks, and they're also making those trade paperbacks available digitally on Comixology. So far, they've released the original Longbow Hunters miniseries collecting all three issues, and five trades of the regular series, with each of those trades collecting six to eight issues based on story arcs. We're hopeful they will do the same with Warlord in the near future. James Falk shared photos of a terrific present from his wife. It's the first two issues of The Longbow Hunters with their gorgeous wraparound covers. Now that is an excellent gift. We learned our episode featured some of Jeff Nettleton's favorite stories. He said, The Star Slayer tale was one of the better installments of the original arc. It has plenty of tension as well as filling in more blanks about this future world and its recent past. Also, Grail plots action like no other artist letting the visuals tell much of the story. He also puts some thought into this world, letting a certain amount of realism mix with the swashbuckling adventure. Jeff also said he wishes that we were covering the original edition of Star Slayer instead of the director's cut edition, since you don't get to talk about the great backup features like the Rocketeer and Gru the Wanderer. And we understand Jeff's point because we're fans of both the Rocketeer and Gru the Wanderer and have both of those titles in our collections. But we already have too much to cover, so we'll leave those great stories for someone else. Jeff continued that these John Sable issues were part of the material I brought to the convention to meet Mike Grell. This is one of Grell's best Sable stories, as Sable must reimmerse himself in Vietnam, as does Mike Grell. In Mike Richardson's book, Between the Panels, Grell is quoted about Vietnam working as an Air Force artist, helping to prepare graphs for a presentation. He saw information and statistics about troop strengths and plans to reduce involvement, and said he carried a guilt about that knowledge in light of the people who died implementing the strategies. In many ways, I felt that the sable of the flashbacks was Mike Grell. That was an amazing story to hear, and thank you, Jeff, for sharing it. Jeff continued, I remember the Green Arrow stories well, since it brought back Shadow. The team of Grell, Hannigan, and Giordano were really cooking in this book. This was the era of grim and gritty, but Grell always seemed to temper his stories with enough humanity that I could get past the brutality. Ed Hannigan was a highly underrated artist, and he ably demonstrated his abilities here. He later really demonstrated both his writing and drawing talents in his own miniseries, Skull and Bones, which went criminally unseen by most comic readers. And sadly, we must admit to having missed that one ourselves, Jeff. Thanks for your comments, Jeff. You are very well read in the world of independent comics. It's great to hear what you think, and we appreciate all the extra information that you include.
Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported Warlord Worlds on social media since the last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it in the next episode. And also forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just send us an email and let us know and we'll be happy to correct that next episode as well. Aaron Scott, Alice Shear, Andrew Kolvek, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of Feathers and Foes and Straight Outta Gallifrey, BC Fan 101, Brian Flesvig, Brian Mulvey, Carlo DeShalton, Chris Mounts, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics Blog, Comics in Color, Constantine Stonecipher, Craig Lee McGinnis, Dan Miles, Dave DeWart, David McGuire, Derek Richardson, Diabolu Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolu Martian Manhunter Blog, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of Pulp to Pixels, Drunken Dork Podcast, Ed, Terry, and Nick Moore of Till Productions, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, FKA Jason from the Silver and Gold Podcast, Freddie Walters, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes, Gord Tolton, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grail Facebook page, James Capellish, James Rouse, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast, Jeff Nettleton, Joao Mariano, Joe Crawford of For the Non-Discerning Reader Blog, John Baker, John Watson, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, Larry Felber, Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destruction Directive from the Two True Freaks Network, Mac Nicali, Mario, Mark Grove, Mark Sweeney of I'm the Gun, Martin Gray of Too Dangerous Blog, Max Romero, Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age, Michael Patterson, Nicholas Prom from Comic Reflections, Paul Carroll, Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, Phase 3 Brian, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast, Rolled Spine podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly of Secret Origins and many other podcasts, Scott Betts, Scott Mix, Shag Matthews of the Fire and Water podcast network, also known as Firestorm Fan, Silver and Gold podcast, Siskoid of Siskoid's Blog of Geekery, Tal Chris, Terry Mitchell, Tim Wallace from Cord Industries Blue Beetle blog, Todd Reese, and Van Z of the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. Before we go, we'll provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I think it's a good way to help get the show noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show. It makes it so easy to know when a new episode is posted. You may also enjoy our other podcasts. Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. And talking about iTunes reviews and our other podcasts brings us to an explanation of our contest. When we saw Ron Randall last year, we picked up a few extra signed Trekker items and gave them away during some fun contests on Trekker Talk, and we want to try to do something similar here. At Heroes Con, we plan to see both Mike Grell, who we talk about here, as well as Mark Schultz, who we talk about on our new Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. So we hope to pick up a couple of extra signed items from both of them and give those away during this contest. 
We don't know yet how many items we'll be able to get signed, and of course there's always a chance one of them might cancel before the con, but let's all think positive thoughts. And we're sure many of you will want to get your names in the drawing, and the way to do that is by submitting an iTunes review for one or more of our shows. We have three shows, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. If you like the shows, please submit an iTunes review. For each review you submit, your name will go in the drawing. So if you like a show, submit a review, and you're in the drawing. You're listening to this show, so that's at least one of our shows that you like, so you can write a review and get your name in the drawing. If you like the other shows, go ahead and write reviews for those and get your name in the drawing multiple times. And in case you are wondering, if you've previously submitted reviews for our shows, then those reviews count as well. We'll be putting those names in the drawing. Once you've submitted your review, or multiple reviews, please send us an email listing the various series we cover in the order of your favorites. Trekker, Xenozoic Tales, Green Arrow, John Sable, Star Slayer, and The Warlord. Yes, we're including Trekker because we actually have one item left over from last fall that Ron Randall signed for us, and it'll be included in the contest too. And the reason we're asking for that list is so we can try to match winners with an item they would want the most. No promises, but we'll do our best to give winners an item from as high up on their favorites list as possible. And if you're outside the U.S., when you email us your list of favorites, please also let us know the country you're in. Unfortunately, since we are in the U.S., iTunes only shows us reviews from listeners in the U.S. That means we have to take a few extra steps to locate them if they are from a different country, and we need to know the country name to locate it. So remember, there are just two steps to enter. One, write an iTunes review. And two, send us an email ranking the titles we cover on our shows in the order of your favorites. We wish everyone the best of luck. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Comics or Mike Brown. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended. Mm-hmm.